Hi, I'm Dr. Daniel Golshevsky, paediatrician and father of three. Welcome to my podcast, Dr. Golly and the Experts. Each episode, I'm joined by a parent who has faced an enormous challenge in raising their child and come out the other side as the expert. We all know how important food is to many families and cultures. In addition to being vital to our health, it's a way of showing love, a way to be creative. It brings people together. And for some, it's part of their identity. Family dinners are the most important thing in my calendar. Yolanda Shannon comes from a mixed Greek and Italian family. And when she fell pregnant with her first child, she envisaged a life where she would cook all sorts of foods for them, just like her mother had done for her. But not long after her firstborn Hudson came along, Yolanda and her husband were given the news that Hudson had a rare condition called phenylketonuria, also called PKU. I'll delve into the condition a little later, but Yolanda, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Now, tell me about the day you got what you refer to as the call. Yeah, I think it's burned into my memory and it's something which... I'll never forget not just the words which were said, but the feeling that I had. So we had brought our beautiful baby boy, Hudson, home the day before. Um, I had just started to feel the effects of some sleep deprivation from having a newborn. So my amazing husband had sent me off to bed to get a little bit of a nap. And while I was sleeping, my phone went off. He didn't think anything of it. It was a number he didn't know. And then as soon as it stopped ringing, it rang again. So at this stage, Mike thought he better answer my phone. Um, And from there, he was told that it was somebody from the children's hospital and they asked for myself. My husband said, look, she's having a nap. She really needs some rest. Can we call you back? And the response was, no, can you please go wake her up? So I think from that moment, Mike knew that something was pretty serious and I remember rather groggily walking down the hallway and sitting on the couch and that's when we got told that something had been picked up on our son's newborn screening test and I just sat there frozen while they explained the term phenylketonuria and I just remember everything freezing and feeling like my world was falling apart around me. It was a really out-of-body experience, which I don't think anyone would understand unless they've had that call or they've had any type of diagnosis, I guess, given to them. So the world really stops and you're just doing everything you can to take in the information that they're giving you. At a time when you are experiencing such emotions, elation, as you said, sleep deprivation, recovery, trying to establish feeding, it's all happening. We just had an amazing five days in the hospital and we were in such a newborn bubble. And it wasn't until that morning, so Hudson was five days old, that I had started to feel a little bit of the baby blues. So all of those emotions were coming. So Everything was a bit hazy and a bit of a blur in any case. So you mentioned the newborn screen, which is a a, a specialised blood test for those who aren't familiar with it. A newborn after 48 hours of life has their heel pricked, which is the 
the nicest way of getting a few <laughs> drops of blood. You literally need just a few drops of blood. It captures about 99% of the Australian populations. We're talking, you know, more than 300,000 babies annually. Yes. And when you see the, the midwife do it, they just touch the back of the heel to a, a piece of cardboard. It's, mm-hmm. It looks bizarre uh, <laughs> that this is a blood test. And then that cardboard goes into an envelope and is posted to a laboratory in Queensland. Yes. And yep. it's a no news is good news arrangement. Yes. And for the vast majority of families, they hear nothing. And people ask me all the time, what was the result? And and I can't tell them. It's just, if you don't hear anything, it's great. So this is a, a blood test that tests for hundreds of conditions. The most uh, common ones, hypothyroidism, PKU, as the case with Hudson and cystic fibrosis. So you got the call and what did they tell you you needed to do immediately? So other than not Google, which was a very um, strong suggestion, which we did not follow. <laughs> no one would follow no. that. <laughs> no, but basically the advice was, we just need you to come into the children's hospital first thing tomorrow. They said, pack a bag, expect to be at the hospital most of the day, come in first thing in the morning and we will have somebody meet you at the hospital. And that was about as much information as they gave us. The nurse who um, I was speaking with did send through a document and a couple of links about what PKU was, I guess to give us some information so that we would hopefully resist just Googling PKU. But the advice was just, wait, come in, and you'll be greeted by someone who will be able to tell you what the next steps are. And Mike and I went to bed that night and one of the things we thought was this might be a false positive. I had someone say, they'll get you in if there's even a slight indication. Mm. So, you know, don't jump to conclusions just yet. And then our thoughts were, okay, if, if he does have this condition, which sounds like it's all about protein, we're in Melbourne. If he's vegan, if he can't eat meat, if it's restricting protein in a very strict sense of um, meat, dairy, you know, those things you think of straight away, we can completely manage that. That's not a big deal. And it wasn't until we were at the children's the next day that we realized just how complicated this mm. condition is. So phenylalanine, which is the important topic here. Yes. It's, a, it's processed by an enzyme, which is then used to make tyrosine, which is an ingredient in, it's an amino acid, an ingredient in the production of proteins mm-hmm. within the body. PKU is the absence of this enzyme. So we can't turn phenylalanine into tyrosine. And the obvious problem is that you can't make tyrosine. So there's a lack of that. But the bigger problem is that if you're not making tyrosine, your phenylalanine is building up and up and up. And that's the problem. We have in our body something called a blood-brain barrier, which is the, the fence, if you will, between the blood and our brain. And certain, it's a very tightly held barrier. There are you know, doormen all the way along <laughs> and certain things can go through, certain things can't. And the buildup of phenylalanine blocks a lot of the transporters in that barrier mm-hmm. and it damages the developing brain. There's no other way to put it. You know, some people describe it as damage almost akin to a combination of Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. But what you get, if left untreated, is 
it can lead to varying degrees of intellectual disability, behaviour problems, seizures. The, the treatment for it is very straightforward, which means that the majority of people impacted by this disease when caught early go on to lead completely normal lives. But it's so crucial that it is found early before any damage occurs, which is why it is part of the newborn screen and why, as you said, we would rather overcall it and apologise and say it's a false positive, your child does not have PKU, lest we forget one case and it go untreated and the damage is irreversible. So when you went in and you first met with the team, talk me through that process. Yeah, I'll never forget that day. Um, It was raining (laughs) and I cried the whole way into the hospital, just scared and the fear of the unknown. Um, And then as somebody who probably hasn't been to the children's hospital since, you know, I'm sure I went there at some stage when I was a child, you walk in and this was 2021, so there's still COVID protocols in place. And you're lining up to go through that process and being at the children's hospital as a now parent of a young child is incredibly confronting. And we were standing behind some very sick kids, you know, um, much older than Hudson. But I think by that stage, I didn't know whether I was crying because we were in this position or crying seeing all these other beautiful kids who were clearly going through their own struggles. It was a very um, difficult place to be. And I'll, I'll always remember standing in that line and just kind of looking around and taking it in and thinking, how are we here? How are we parents who have a, a six-day-old and need to be at the children's hospital? So again, you're just going on autopilot. Um, we were met by a beautiful nurse um, who took us to get some more tests. So these were the tests which they wanted to confirm what they already suspected through the newborn screening. That was difficult, you know, having to get a proper blood test. So as you mentioned, the heel prick is rather simple, you know, not too invasive. You know, your child might cry a little bit, but having to get a couple of vials of blood with a six-day-old, felt Mm. very confronting. Um, And I know my husband found it very difficult and he was still definitely processing. Mm. Um, And I can tell you the first time that I really felt Mike struggle with it, which was when we got back home after the children's hospital. But he was definitely feeling all the feelings I was feeling and was just doing his best to support both of us through this journey to get this information, I guess, at the hospital. And what, what were you told? What, what did life mean for Hudson day five onwards? Yeah, so we walked in and then I remember seeing this team of five experts, five specialists, five people from different medical backgrounds. So we had, I think, a dietitian, a nurse, a social worker, a doctor, a consultant. And you just think, wow, one, this is serious that we have this whole team, but they very quickly explained that they were the team Hudson was going to have until he turned 18 and he was no longer at the children's hospital. So first thing I thought of was how lucky we were to have these people. We live in a lucky country. Oh, we're so lucky. Mm. Very, very grateful. Um, They sat us down 
they got a printout of a PowerPoint about what is PKU and they stepped us through it in terms of the genetics first and how this has come about. So Mike and I both being carriers of this gene and then they stepped through what it meant in terms of consequences, which we've already discussed. And then they talked about management and management is diet and a very restrictive diet. And I think that was the first moment of shock in the sense of thinking it was something which was easier than what it was. So I remember the moment they had the list of foods which Hudson would not be able to consume most likely for his entire lifetime and seeing that things like normal grains, pastas, bread, I mean, that clearly shows my Italian. Italian, exactly. (laughs) Pasta, pasta was a big thing, which I thought of when I went, what do you mean he can't have normal flour? And what do you mean we can't just give him as many vegetables as he wants? And talking about the management of PKU in that room was, yeah, it was just a real shock. Did you have to stop breastfeeding? I did. So when I was in that room, actually, I remember having to breastfeed Hudson with tears running down my face and an awful COVID mask on. (laughs) And the first thing they told us, the first management, so if you're talking about management for a newborn, it's feeding them. And breast milk has protein. Normal formula obviously has protein. Protein's incredibly important. So we were given a special formula, which um, was supplied by the pharmacy at the children's hospital. So you were told you have to stop breastfeeding immediately? Immediately. How did that feel? Incredibly difficult. It was something which I had wanted to do. It was was something very important. Mm. I had started expressing colostrum at 37 weeks in the hope that that would help the process. And when Hudson left the hospital and we brought him home, he'd gone back to his birth weight. You know, we were having success in our feeding journey. And so my husband's stepmom had warned me that you might need to stop breastfeeding for a few days. When the hospital had received Hudson's blood tests, that was going to depend on the length in which I needed to stop. I was lucky that it was only 24 hours. So 24 hours, as soon as you get home, you need to be feeding him this formula. If you do not have a breast pump, if you do not have bottles and a steriliser, you need to go on the way home from the hospital and collect those. And I, being (laughs) probably over-prepared, already had all of that at home even though... Just in case. Just in case. Mm. We'd always said that we wanted Mike to be able to give a bottle, Mm. maybe when Hudson was about six weeks old and onwards. I had sterilised it all. It was literally there in the cupboard. So I remember getting home after a very long day at the hospital and was so grateful that we didn't have to make any stops and didn't have to think. I mean... It would have been overwhelming and I can't imagine how hard that would have been for a lot of other families who perhaps weren't lucky enough to have that already at home ready to go. And the first bottle that you gave Hudson, 
did he push back against it? So challenging. So I think the moment we walked in the door, Hudson was crying and screaming and I called the hospital straight away and said, I'm sorry, I know you told us not to feed him. Can I give him one more feed? I was in tears, the thought of feeding my son after being told not to breastfeed him was a crazy amount of guilt, you know, thinking if I'm feeding him, am I hurting him? Am I damaging his brain? But in that moment, I was just so panicked and I couldn't contemplate having to get my head around formula, which we hadn't done. Mm. Um, You spend all this time in the hospital learning how to take your child home and do the basic things like feed them. And no one had stepped us through formula or how to make a bottle. And in that moment, it just felt so foreign. Mm. So I called the dietitians in tears and they were like, yes, of course, of course you can feed him. The 24 hours of not breastfeeding can start after this feed. And so Mike and I then had a couple of hours to work out, read the formula instructions, work out how to do bottles. But did you feel during that feed, did you feel in a way that you were poisoning him? I did. And that was a feeling which didn't stop for my breastfeeding journey. Um, it's, It's a very tricky balance of continuing breastfeeding and also having to manage protein levels. So I wasn't able to exclusively breastfeed from this moment in time. And the anxiety which came when I did breastfeed Hudson was So it's competing emotions of wanting the connection and the breastfeeding, the immune transfer, all the benefits of breastfeeding, but also this feeling like I'm giving him something I know his body can't process. Yes, definitely. How long did you breastfeed for? We've only just recently finished, which is... Oh, <laughs> it was a very challenging journey. Um, I think that's amazing. Okay. <laughs> it's two two plus years. Yes, yeah. And Hudson would have continued. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, going back to that first bottle, Mike did that first bottle, and the idea was that I really wanted to continue to breastfeed for those twenty four hours. Mike would do the bottle. I would pump at the same time, which is the advice we'd received from the hospital. And I remember that was the first time I saw Mike break down because Hudson didn't want that bottle. And Mike, being the problem solver that he is, this was a problem he couldn't fix other than just try and keep offering it to him. And I think it's funny when you're, as a couple, in this very unique set of circumstances, I'm sure it's the same for a lot of couples. I feel like when one of you is struggling, the other one is stronger. And that's how... Mike and I definitely were. So he was having a really hard time with this first bottle. And I felt like I then had the strength to to be there for him. But we were lucky enough that that first bottle was hard. But from then on, Hudson picked up the bottle pretty easily. And he could shift from bottle to breast with ease. For the first few months. And I remember saying how grateful I was for that. So the trick, and I think the... Breastfeeding, PKU formula, you know, dance, I guess, which any new mum with a little PKU newborn has. The advice is sometimes different. I've heard that some people have breastfed to a timer 
and then had to take the child off and give them the formula. We were lucky in the sense that I can't imagine how hard that would be to have to remove your child. Yeah. <laughs> we had the the opposite in that we fed him formula to fill him up and then I was able to breastfeed him to appetite. And so middle of the night, you know, if he woke up, Mike would have to get up and get the bottle. Um, we'd feed him the bottle first and then I'd be able to put him on my breast. You'd and, be dessert. Yes, exactly. And it was such a nice way to do it. it and was, was Hudson growing beautifully, developing beautifully, hitting milestones? He was. I think I was hypervigilant. I remember going to a pediatrician at four months old to check that he was holding his head up enough or that he was doing enough eye contact. I, I was on edge, but he did develop and has developed The challenge normally. with this condition is that the damage is slow. Mm-hmm. It's hard to pick. Yes. And so were you looking at everything and thinking, is that brain damage? Is that a seizure? Is this a problem? Absolutely everything. Normal newborn movements, you know, worrying about when he was first going to smile. So, Did it rob you of the enjoyment in the first few months of life? Definitely. So when my husband went back to work, um, his company didn't have parental leave at the time. So it was two weeks and he was back. And I remember begging him. I said, I don't care if you need to take unpaid leave. I was begging him to stay home. And my reasoning was I felt like we hadn't had the newborn happy bubble that we were promised. And it was funny. We'd experienced the exact same two weeks, but Mike saw it differently. For him, they were still the best two weeks he had ever had in the sense that, you know, he had Hudson and he has always been just a natural dad. Like he is amazing. Um, and I felt that same love, but there were so many other things going on for me. There was the anxiety and the guilt and the grief and the depression. And I was really in that hole where I could still enjoy my newborn and it would kind of be the times when I wasn't with him when he was napping where everything would feel really heavy. So we just had a different experience. Mike and I are such a strong couple and I couldn't get through everything we've been through in the last two years with anyone else. But we both passed on this genetic condition to our son and it made me question us as a couple and it made me question myself as a mother you know, I had grown this beautiful boy who was perfect in every way, except for the fact that he's missing this little enzyme. And I took that on as being my fault. At the time we fell pregnant with Hudson, we'd actually seen an obstetrician before we fell pregnant. We'd done a whole lot of tests. You know, I think I went into that pregnancy feeling like we had dotted our eyes mm. and crossed our T's. And genetic carrier screening just never came up. And I felt like I had put a lot of trust in a specialist to ensure that we were doing everything we possibly could to have a healthy pregnancy and a healthy baby. And I remember it was about the time my husband went back to work that I started to spiral thinking 
we missed something and starting to educate myself about genetic carrier screening. And that really haunted me. Do you know, I think a lot of the response from people when I explained that was if you had done carrier screening, if you'd gone down a different path, you wouldn't have Hudson. So the guilt you feel then <laughs> mm. over having these thoughts of, I oh, wish we had done win. things differently. Guilty if you do, guilty if you don't. And mm. I think that's what a lot of people who haven't been in this type of position don't realize is that you can love your child with all your heart and not want to change anything about them. But that condition isn't something which defines them. Mm. And if you could change that condition, you would in a heartbeat. But it's hard to explain to people. And because people don't quite understand, you tend to not explain it to people. So there was a lot of bottling up all of these feelings because I didn't want to feel like a bad mum by trying to explain them to someone. So let's fast forward to the introduction of solids, which happened at what age? He was about five months. And what were you told at five months and thereafter that needed to be different specifically with Hudson? We were told, I guess, the set of food that we could give him. So start solids as you would normally. Choose the way you want to introduce solids, whether it's purees, baby led. That was all within our control. But we had a list of vegetables and a list of fruit. And these are the ones which are low enough in protein that we don't have to weigh them out and measure them. Those are the ones you can start with. Do that for a few months, and then we'll reassess what foods you can give. Is he, having, is he being tested regularly? Yes. So another, I guess, um, lesson we had to learn pretty quickly was testing our son once a week. Is this urine? No, it's the heel prick. It's the heel prick. It's on that same Guppery card that you said looks quite, mm. <laughs> quite so it's odd. Like, it's like a, um, testing your blood sugar. Yes. It's that little prick. It happens quickly. It's a tiny, short-lived sting. Yes. And you get a drop of blood. Yes. Some days, harder to get harder. the blood. <laughs> yeah, because scarring and, and the heel gets thicker and tougher. And Yeah. So that was always Mike's role. Um, and you were, t- you were doing this how often? Once a week. And I couldn't bear it at the start because Hudson would get quite upset. Yeah. So Mike was the somewhat stronger one in that sense. It still broke his heart. The difference, I guess, with testing... Hudson's phenylalanine levels is that we're not lucky enough to get those results straight away. So it's exactly like the newborn screening. You do the blood test on the card, put it in an express post envelope, and you ship it off to the labs. And five days later, we're getting those results. So again, the anxiety when you have a newborn and there is no indication as to what his levels are like. High, low, you can't tell. So five days of anxiety, one day respite, and then another blood test yep. again. And the the sadness that would come when his levels came back too high, and they had, they being the children's hospital, had warned us, you'll probably go for a stage where his levels are quite up and down because he's growing and he's a baby and it's a moving target. So while his tolerance for protein doesn't go up significantly when he grows. There is a little bit of leeway. So when you're growing and developing, your body does use up some of that protein. Mm. 
And then in the other sense, when you're growing and developing, you're also eating more. So we were told that he'll go through a growth spurt and he'll probably get hungry. And that means he'll be taking more breast milk and we'll have to adjust the formula. So whenever we got that call and it was his levels are getting to the higher end of our range, you need to increase his formula by five mils, by 10 mils. Which he doesn't necessarily agree with. No. (laughs) (laughs) And the heartbreak for me, knowing that he's getting a little bit less breast milk. Mm. Am I feeding him too much? It would result in me being in tears anytime his levels were getting closer. And I guess the thing to note is you're being so tightly um, managed at that stage that Mm. his levels are never going to get to a state that that's so high that it's damaging. You know, we're doing things as soon as we can to prevent Mm. any damage and we're keeping his levels within a range so that we have some leeway to work with. And saying that, knowing that we'd done this test five days ago and we'd only just got the results and his levels have been in that range for five days causes that same stress and anxiety of what damage has been happening while we're waiting for these results to come back. There's obviously an extensive list in your mind and printouts yes. in your house. <laughs> but what are what are the general absolutely nots and definitely yes yep. for things that Hudson can eat? So if you think of it like a traffic light system, so we have our green foods, which are foods he can eat as much as he likes, within reason, like you've said, everything's got protein in it, but your basic tomatoes, cucumbers, lettuce, probably about half of the vegetables that you can think off the top of your head, most of those are low enough in protein that Hudson can consume them in a normal diet. Fruit is a big one, so it's basically just bananas that come out of that green category. Every other fruit Hudson can have as much as he likes within a normal diet. Then you have the red foods, which are the foods Hudson cannot touch. So all types of meat and fish. Um, For some reason, people always ask if fish is (laughs) included. But yes, fish is um, just the same. It still has protein. Eggs, dairy, legumes, so things like chickpeas and and beans he can't eat, Um, most of your grains, so uh, normal flours, normal pasta, uh, things like tofu and soy products, all of that is in our red category Hudson can't consume. Then we have our orange category, which is food which he can consume. If we weigh it, measure it, limit how much is having so that we know exactly how much protein we are giving him. So if you're thinking of vegetables, vegetables like broccoli, spinach, uh, they have higher amounts of protein and therefore we have to weigh how much he has. Vegetables like corn, peas, (laughs) and it's important that we are giving Hudson these food Mm. because he still needs to have a certain amount of protein through natural food in his diet, he just can only have five to six grams. So these orange foods are foods like banana. Banana is another one that Hudson could eat all day. <laughs> and I always feel so sad that we have to limit how much banana we give our toddler. Like it's a bizarre concept. What about lollies, junk food? 
You have to be careful with lollies. So I guess sugar is probably the only thing out there which doesn't actually have a lot of phenylalanine, if Mm. any. But there are sweeteners and there are specific sweeteners out there which contain quite high levels of phenylalanine. And so we have a list of all of those numbers and we know which of those sweeteners are okay for Hudson to consume and which are not. So in two years' time, I mean, my head goes School. to three places. First is restaurants. Yes. Like such a big part of a young family's life. Yes. Going to cafes, going to restaurants. It's part of our culture. Yes. Yep. Then there is childcare. Mm-hmm. And then there's school and associated events like birthday parties. Mm-hmm. How do people navigate that? I think it's gradual. And I think if you stop and think at restaurants, we manage it by bringing Hudson's food. We manage it by looking before we go anywhere. There's no spontaneity in what we do. We are checking menus. We are talking to the restaurant beforehand to see if they can accommodate us bringing something which they can cook or heat up for Hudson. And a Greek, Italian mum, a New Zealand dad, what about travel? Travel was the first one I thought of. If we're talking about those early days when you're starting to slowly process everything. I remember that moment I was lying in bed and went, we'll never be able to bring Hudson to Europe to eat a pizza. You know, he'll never be able to experience that. You manage it. We have done the trip to New Zealand a couple of times And it is a suitcase full of medical food. So if we talk about Hudson not being able to have normal flour and pasta, we order in special flour and pasta, which is specifically for people living with these type of conditions. And obviously, we need to bring that with us. We can't just go to the supermarket in New Zealand and pick it up. So we have a suitcase full of whatever food we'll need for the trip. We have a suitcase full of Hudson's medical supplements. So it's important that he takes a supplement with every meal because he's missing out on so much nutrients and vitamins with the food that he isn't able to eat. Obviously, we have to get that from our pharmacy here. We have to bring it over with us a lot of white powder, so we always have a letter (laughs) from the children's hospital and we always get questioned in customs. (laughs) And we brought them over in carry-on luggage because you can't can't risk anything getting lost, you know, especially his supplements and his food. We would be in very dire straits. You'd be on the plane straight back to Melbourne if your luggage got lost. So (laughs) customs was an interesting interesting journey for us um, when we went to New Zealand in April this year. But Obviously, making sure that when we travel, we have a kitchen. We can't stay in a hotel. We can't just bring Hudson down to the buffet to get some food. And has it become yours and Michael's diet as well? Or do you eat more freely despite his restrictions? We got told by the children's hospital that first day we went that we can't eat his diet. Because I remember thinking very strongly, this is us as a family. Mm. Everything will be normal for Hudson. We will eat exactly how he, he eats. And they told us we would be malnourished if we did that, but it also wouldn't be in Hudson's best interest. If he's going to go out into the world and there's going to be people eating around him, he needs to be comfortable. It's such a conflict because you want that 
Team Shannon approach. You do. But at the same time, it's limiting on you, it's limiting on Michael. And as you said, he will venture into the big world one day. And so the middle ground is you make meals which are similar and you add protein to yours. Yep. That is what we try to do. And Mike and I went through a stage last year where we felt like we weren't challenging ourselves enough with that. So we decided to go meat-free in the house. We still allowed ourselves meat out of the house. Mm. We were struggling cooking it anyway. The guilt, you know, you just we just kind of went off it because Hudson wasn't able to consume it. Um, so we did go vegetarian, I guess, for a year just to try and expand our repertoire of not always needing to rely on meat as a protein source in food. We're a bit more lax on that now and we're really just trying to think of foods we can enjoy as a family and what that looks like for Hudson and what that looks like for us. And it means two pots. It means double the (laughs) cleanup at the end. You know, you're making at least two separate meals all of the time. And a lot of the time it means Hudson's just eating different food because that's what's easiest and that's what we have in the freezer. How do you go to a restaurant? (sighs) We don't really. Do you go to friends' houses, family? Do you (laughs) you limit the entire meal? Do you just limit what goes on his plate? We try to bring his meals. The food he can eat at restaurants is basically chips. (laughs) And it is the smallest portion of chips. Um, I can tell you that 45 grams worth of chips is one gram worth of protein. And that's the guide that we have from the children's hospital. Per day. Yes. Yep. So we usually give him, Hudson is on five to six grams of protein a day. So six grams is probably his upper limit. We aim for five. What, just to give the listeners an idea, what's six grams of protein in one Same go? amount of protein as in an egg. Or one egg. One egg. I think people think of that and go, okay, you don't give him eggs, but you have to think that one. There's protein everywhere. Everywhere. We have I'm to sitting m- here thinking I had three eggs for breakfast. <laughs> well, my protein is probably in the hundreds right now. <laughs> and I've, I remember doing a video um, for my social media account, which is just my friends and family of me making oats in the morning. And it was the most basic breakfast, you know, no added toppings, no, you know, peanut butter or chia seeds or and I remember getting to the end of being like, yep, this breakfast is 10 grams of protein. <laughs> and it's just one wheat bix. So we give Hudson one gluten-free wheat bix for breakfast at the moment, and that is 1.6 grams of protein. So he's not going to be that kid who can eat five wheat bix in one sitting when he's a you know, growing, hungry mm. teenager. Um, even and, now, and was he looking for it? Is he searching for it, asking for more? We're kind of lucky in that Hudson's not that interested in food. He's a very active little boy. Um, He's been always quite receptive to us saying no, no more. He will always ask for more chips. (laughs) I think that's one food. That's a universal rule of children. I think for all of us. I was going to say, it it doesn't stop with children. (laughs) If we ever get too many chips, Mike's always kind of eating them quite quickly, which I think he secretly enjoys. (laughs) Um, We bring our scales everywhere. So we have... A little set of scales and we measure things and you get some very strange looks measuring out chips into a bowl at a restaurant. I often think people must think I'm on a very strict diet Mm. and I'm measuring them for me and must, I don't know what they think when we then give that bowl to our child. It's hard. It's, if there is anything else on the menu, which looks remotely like Hudson could eat it, I usually ask 
because it's nice to have a different option. What, what does Hudson understand? At the age of two, does he know why or does he just think this is life? Mum and dad are very restrictive about what I eat. I sometimes wonder because he's an only child if he is a bit more sheltered than if he had had a sibling who eats something different. Mm. I think a lot of parents would attest to the fact that you can't always eat when your child eats. When we are all sitting together, we do try and explain, this is mum's breakfast, this is Hudson's breakfast. Hudson's breakfast has less protein. You know, mum's breakfast has too much protein for Hudson. We try and say protein in the conversation. Um, He knows what PKU is as a word. I don't know whether he knows he has Hmm. PKU. But he's heard it enough. That's another area where I try not to overthink what we're doing. We do try and talk to him about it. But if I overthink it, I get worried we're not doing enough. And we want Hudson to be resilient. We want him to not be embarrassed. We don't want him to ever feel like he has to succumb to peer pressure, Mm. you know, if he's got friends who are eating things. I guess in our head, we want to try and raise him to be more resilient than perhaps we feel about this condition. Talk me through the day you walked into childcare. (laughs) So we obviously thought about childcare while we were pregnant and you fill in forms and we knew nothing was wrong or that we'd have a different experience to any other person at that stage. So I had planned to go back to work at about nine months. I was meant to be going back to work four days and we had got into a quite a good childcare in the area. And I remember walking in and we'd done a tour while I was pregnant and I hadn't even looked at the kitchen. And a lot of the childcares in our area have kitchens and chefs and you can't bring in food because of all of the allergies, restrictions. Yeah, Very, very strict. And we walked past the kitchen and the chef and she was making pizzas for the kids on, you know, little pita breads, ham, spinach, pineapple, capsicum and cheese. <laughs> cheese. And I stood there and went, we need to chat to you about Hudson's condition. I'd mentioned it to the director of the childcare at the time when we walked in, but talking to the chef and looking at all this food that she had on the bench out in front of us, I went, pita bread he can't have. We'd have to give you an alternative. Tomato sauce, tick, that's fine. Pineapple, that's fine. Ham, that's in the no column. Cheese, in the no column. What was the look on the face spinach. of the chef? <laughs> <laughs> I think when I said that she had to weigh out the spinach, she was thinking I was probably crazy. <laughs> like spinach you can give him, but you can only give him 20 grams because that's one gram of protein. So, and she was just looking at me blank and she seemed like a really lovely lady, but um, and, she and was also, a bit shocked. <laughs> there's also, I mean, that aside, there's, there's Hudson just running over and grabbing another kid's food as happens every day in childcare. every day. I mean... Most childcares have pretty strict, if a child has an allergen, Mm. you know, protocols in place. And so I think from that sense of, you know, while it's not foolproof, trying to ensure that a child has their meal and just that, if there are complications or medical issues, most childcares can get their head around that. And childcare's a whole lot of other complications um, when 
you send the kid to childcare for the first time, all I hear, and obviously it's um, not something we've experienced because Hudson hasn't gone to childcare, but that first year of sickness that is just so commonly talked about, it's more complicated. Yeah, sickness for is more complicated in PKU. Mm-hmm. So as you would know, and my very basic understanding of it is that Whenever any of us are sick, our body breaks down muscle, mm. which leads to more protein in the blood, which leads it crossing over to that brain through that blood-brain barrier. So if Hudson was to get sick, his protein levels in his blood instantly go up. So most parents of a child with a metabolic condition, as soon as there's a little sniffle, would instantly cut down how much protein mm. that child's getting through food because you know it's naturally his levels are going to go up in any case. So it's a bit of a balance, but if Hudson did get sick, our reaction at the moment would be, okay, we'll maybe drop a gram and see what his levels are like and whether we need to drop more depending on how sick he is. But I was so paranoid about Hudson getting sick. So when I got home and thought about childcare and thinking about how young Hudson was, he's not even a a year old at that stage, and thinking about how much his brain is developing every day at that young age. I just couldn't contemplate childcare. So we did do that to her and we did have that discussion with them. But I very quickly called them and said, not for us this not year, for us. we'll re- revisit. I remember distinctly during my pediatric training, there is this huge exam that we have and we've got to cram as much knowledge as you possibly can into our heads. And so you you can't delve deep into certain conditions, especially these metabolic ones, because there are so many, they're so rare, they're so complicated. But I I distinctly remember when it came to PKU, you you have a general idea of the cycle that is affected, the enzyme that's missing, the name of the condition, usually an eponymous name, if there was some, (laughs) you know, professor somewhere who, who first discovered it. Yes. Yep. And then a very basic understanding of the treatment. And Mm -hmm. it's, I can tell you right now what my knowledge was. It was, this is the condition, pretty sure I could spell it. (laughs) That's impressive though. That was a good start. (laughs) And it was part of the newborn screen, you have to use a specialized formula and decrease protein in the diet. Simple. Mm -hmm. The reason I'm telling you this is I want to know, do you find that people ever minimize the impact of this condition on you, on him, your family? Constantly. What does that look like? Early days, it was talking to people about what Hudson wouldn't be able to eat and the response being, toddlers don't eat anything anyway. You know, by the time he's eating food, it'll half go on the floor anyway. (laughs) My kids don't eat, they just eat chicken nuggets for dinner. And I'm thinking, yeah, okay, (laughs) chicken nuggets is definitely (laughs) on the list. Not there. That's red. (laughs) So there was a lot of And look, it comes from a good place, um, but there was a lot of, all toddlers are difficult when it comes to food, so that won't be that different for you. Did you get, oh, he can eat fruit and veg? No problem. I, we got that and we got, his diet will be so much healthier than our kid's diet because he gets to eat all this fruit and veg and our kids don't eat fruit and veg. And I think what people didn't grasp is he's still a toddler. He's Mm. not going to necessarily, even though he perhaps has been exposed to it more still doesn't love always eating his fruit and veg. He goes through stages. So there was a lot of misconceptions that this diet is healthy because 
fruit and veg. How could it not be? But as you said, he's missing out on vital nutrients so much. that you have to supplement. There's so much that Hudson's not getting and which he's getting through this tiny little supplement, you know. Lots of misconceptions about his diet being healthy when in fact it's not. Lots of, you've got this beautiful boy in front of you, you know, and he's developing normally, so it can't be be challenging. Yeah. Cannot be that challenging. So it's hard when you don't want to come across as ungrateful. So you let people say those comments and you go, oh, yeah, of course, of course, you know, all children don't eat things, of course. (laughs) And they often come from close friends who just don't understand and who are trying to be positive. And it's just something which you internalize and makes you feel so incredibly lonely. And I remember when my mother's group were having that conversation, starting solids about all the different foods they were giving their children. And I remember just at one stage having to remove myself from that chat because it was just too hard to listen to. Too painful. And it's really hard when food is a trigger. Yeah. Because food is everywhere. Everywhere. Yes, everywhere. But the misconceptions are constant, unfortunately. You've mentioned medical foods Mm -hmm. that replace a lot of the important nutrients. I'm imagining these don't come cheap. They don't. There's a significant financial um, outlay. Are you supported in that regard? We are. So I say that cautiously. (laughs) We get a food allowance from the government and we're very lucky to have this food allowance. But I do know it has been taken away from families with metabolic conditions in the past. And there was quite a big campaign by our volunteer organisation here in Australia to get that food allowance back. So if we're talking about how expensive Hudson's food is, we have to order in special flour. We have to order in special pastas. If you think about how much money you usually spend on flour or pasta at the supermarket, we're talking under $5 Mm. for a packet. Hudson's is about $14 for a... You know, ten to fourteen dollars for a two hundred and fifty gram little packet of pasta. So we are lucky in the sense that the government does subsidize a lot of Hudson's formulas and does provide us with a food allowance and provides everyone in Australia who has a metabolic condition who is sticking to diet. So we need hospital sign off to say yes, we are Managing. Responsible parents. Yeah, we, we yeah. are responsible. And look, it's you think that that's a simple, of course, everybody must do that. But this is probably the most restrictive mm. diet in the world. So if you start thinking about teenagers and adults, you know, I can't stick to a diet, <laughs> you know, try and take chocolate off me for a week and it doesn't last I'm long. Absolutely. Can you imagine restricting pretty much every food group? Mm. So it's it's actually really difficult and getting that food allowance for older adults um, and teenagers can be a bit more of a challenge, I guess. But just the fact that there's a group of people who have had to fight for us to have that food allowance, and that was before our time, but that's an element of the rare disease world, Mm. which took me a while to understand that nothing is a given. The supply of this food isn't a given. I can't imagine how stressful it would have been during COVID times when 
there's delays in supply of food anyway when people are going to the supermarket and not able to get things. I can't imagine how stressful that was Mm. for parents of PKU children when you're already so limited, you know, if there's frozen veg or fresh veg not available, if there's issues with supply of supplements and with... It's life or death for your family. It really is. It really is. And And we will put uh, links to the support organisations in the show notes because advocacy is such a huge part of this because it is rare, but it is so important that you have that support and you have that access. And there's not enough voices. Mm. I guess it's this squeaky wheel gets the oil scenario. So That's why we're here. We want to make more noise. Why we are here. Exactly. 100%. And it's hard when you've got a job and a toddler to be doing all of this extra work. And I hope one day that Hudson looks back on it and realizes that it's all been done for him. Now, speaking of families. Yes. We are hoping to expand your family. We are. And today's <laughs> day one. Day one of our IVF cycle. It's, yeah, daunting, exciting, and it's been a long journey. I love that the smile on your face <laughs> is so wide right now. Yeah. It's funny. It was, it's been this wide all day, actually. So um, it doesn't mean we still don't have a challenge in front of us. But, but through IVF, you can genetically select out this condition we can and know that your next child will not have pku yes and i remember we were given that option when we were in the hospital with our five-day-old and they very bluntly said for your second child you can go down the ivf route or you can go down the natural pregnancy route and test and make a decision to terminate if you wish to and Mike and I sat there in shock, you know, when <laughs> weren't even thinking of that with our newborn at that stage, thinking of expanding our family. But it was very confronting to be like, these are your choices mm. to continue your family on top of everything else, which we were going through at the time. So because it, with each subsequent natural pregnancy, there's a one in four, one in four chance, chance that PKU will come. Yes. Uh, one in two chance that the child will be an unaffected carrier. Mm-hmm. And again, a 25% one in four chance that the child will not be affected and not be a carrier. Yes. You wouldn't roll that dice. We really took a lot of time to come to the decision of IVF was going to be our journey for our family. And we have people within our PKU community who have had children, second children naturally, and they haven't been affected by PKU. We decided to consider IVF as an option. And I think for me, it was the guilt I had felt over Hudson's condition and how hard that was for me to survive in that newborn stage, that first year. And that guilt doesn't go away, but that first year it was overwhelming. And I knew how hard and challenging this condition was for Hudson. And life is going to be challenging for our children in a lot of ways. But knowing that Hudson's got this challenge from day one, I couldn't do that again knowingly. And the genetic side of IVF took a lot longer than what I thought. I think when we went in for our initial appointment, it was this time last year. So it's taken a year to put everything in place so that 
we can do this cycle and we can test these embryos. It was a lot more complicated than what I thought. But for us, if that means that we can save our second child from these challenges and if we could take away this condition from Hudson, we would do it in a heartbeat. Mm. So why wouldn't we give a second child the same opportunity? And also, in a way, I think it lets us focus on Hudson as well. Yep. And it lets us know that if there's anything Hudson needs, we'll be able to provide that for him if, you know, we ever have the opportunity to get a new treatment for PKU. We're able to focus on Hudson in that sense. Now, I want you to consider the journey you've been on, the pain you've gone through, the tears you've cried. And I want you to tell me about Hudson today because I just saw a photo and I see the (laughs) cheekiest, most gorgeous face ever. Yes, cheeky was very high up on my list of (laughs) personality traits that he has. Um, He is the most happy, giggling, laughing, constantly little boy. He is full of energy. (laughs) which is good. (laughs) From the moment he wakes up in the day, he wants to go out and do things and run around. And he's just so full of love. He's going through a real cuddly stage at the moment. So he'll come up to you and say, cuddle, and just grab onto you, which melts (laughs) my heart. And he's incredibly intelligent. Like we, I worried, I worried so much. And it doesn't mean that we won't still have challenges, but Hudson's doing incredibly well. And he is speaking and expressing himself and doing all those things, which makes you proud as a parent anyway. But I feel like for us, there's that extra level of, of pride in every accomplishment he no, reaches. No, it's all because of you. <laughs> We're lucky to have such a great community around us. And so it's because of what Mike and I have done as parents, but It's also the support we've received from our family. Gosh, this is where I'm going to (laughs) cry. We wouldn't have been able to get through this without our parents. My mum, my Italian mother, who somehow has just picked up this PKU diet like it was something she's been doing for all her life. And I don't know how Italian mothers do it, but everything she makes is delicious. (laughs) And, you know, it's hard. to. It's anyone who has ever cooked anything with this PKU flour knows it's incredibly difficult. And I have so many failures where things just go in the bin. It's a real learning curve. But she's there making these Italian donuts like she used to make for us as kids with his flour. And they come out perfect. (laughs) And that is not known of in the PKU community. Brilliant. (laughs) No, we're lucky. We're lucky with the community we've had around us and it really does. It took us a while to find our village and it took us a while to find our people and it felt like a very lonely journey. And then we opened up and realized we've got plenty of people around us who want to learn and who want to help. So it's Mike and I, but it's a lot more. Beautiful. Yolanda Shannon, thank you for coming and thank you for sharing your journey about Hudson and phenylketonuria, PKU, and wish you all the best for the Thank future. Thank you so much. Thank you. And to enjoy more parenting stories like this one, please like, follow, subscribe, and share Dr. Golly and the Experts wherever you listen. 
And for any information on my sleep programs or new book, head to drgully.com. And just before you go, I have a small favor to ask. If you're enjoying this podcast, I'd love if you could rate and review the show so that more people can find us and hear these incredible stories, just like Yolanda's. Yolanda's.